people can't get saved by looking at your life. They have to hear the plan of salvation. Don't say, I witness with my life. You should, but that's, if that's exclusive, then you're witnessing only to yourself. They need to hear the word of truth in order to be converted. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 10 of the book of Romans, and in this section, which looks at Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as its Messiah, we find the Apostle Paul indicating how it is that individuals come to genuine faith in Christ. In verse 9, we see a process in which people believe in their heart and then confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. But what exactly does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy as he examines that question. And so sometimes you will hear a preacher like myself take this verse and paraphrase it, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Is that abusing the text? No, not at all, because in the context, Paul's applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he has just spoken of the fact that confession of Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, results in salvation. When you believe Jesus is Yahweh and that God raised him from the dead. Now, we saw that the term Lord there in verse 9, whoever confesses Jesus, Lord, it's not, well, Lord in terms of Lord of your life, though that should happen. It's Lord in terms of God, kurios. And we saw the word certainly can be used just as a term of respect, like sir or most reverend sir. And sometimes it's used that way in the Bible. But most of the time in the New Testament, the word kurios, Lord, and we usually capitalize it to distinguish it from its common use, is in reference to the Lord God himself. And so in the Old Testament, if you remember, God will speak of Yahweh, of the Lord. And when he wants to translate that word Yahweh into Greek, because most Jews read the Greek Old Testament and not the Hebrew, and what do we say the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called? Septuagint, and it's abbreviated in your Bible, LXX in the margin, because 70 men were involved in its translation. When God wants to translate that word Yahweh, he uses the word Lord. Now, it's interesting. Paul is taking this verse from Joel chapter 2, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you go back to Joel 2, you can turn there if you want or just listen. Just listen, be easier. Some of you, by the way, have never read your preface to the New American Standard, have you? You know, take your Bible sometime, maybe this afternoon, and go to the front of the Bible and read the preface to the New American Standard. There's actually some helps there that will open up some of the truths that are found in that particular translation. And different translations do it different ways, but generally speaking, in our English Bible, when the word Lord is the Hebrew word Adonai, one of the names for God, it's capital L, small letter O, small letter R, small letter D, right? But when it's Yahweh, the covenant name for God, his most sacred name, I am, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So when God identified himself to Moses, he said, my name is I am, Yahweh. 
And so in Joel chapter 2, whoever will call upon the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, will be saved. And Paul now takes that verse and he applies it to the Lord Jesus, affirming that Jesus is equal with the Father in holiness, in majesty, as the one true God. And so Paul says he has been given the name which is above every name, that someday everyone will confess. And what is that name? That he is Lord Kurios, Yahweh. And so Paul says here plainly, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a whoever. That's one of the great whoever's of the Bible. It means anybody and everybody. Why? Because God is not a respecter of persons. Now, Notice here, we've just read that he is Lord of all. I want you to hold your finger here for just a moment and turn back to the left to Acts chapter 10 for just a moment. Go to Acts chapter 10, Acts the 10th chapter. In Acts 10, if you remember, God is working in the heart of a man by the name of Cornelius or Cornelius, however you want to pronounce it. And Cornelius was a man who was unsaved according to Acts 11 when Peter meets him. He is a man who prays to God and gives alms to the Lord's work, but nonetheless, he still needs to be a, needs to be a saved person. God hears his prayer, even as an unsaved person. Sometimes Christians kind of just wholesale say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of a lost person until he calls upon Christ for salvation. That's not true. It may sound good, but it's not true. Now, it is true that God will promise to hear the prayer of a lost man when he calls upon Jesus for salvation. And it is true that all the promises for prayer in the Bible are given to God's people, but sometimes God hears the prayer of a lost man. And one example is Cornelius. God says your, your prayers and your alms have ascended to God as a, as a sweet memorial. God was pleased, but he was still lost, still needed to be saved. And so God gives this man a vision, an angel of God comes, and God, uh, uh, actually a real angel comes, and God gives Peter a vision, and God brings the two together. And that's what God does. When a man is open to the truth that he has, God gives more light. Now look in Acts 10, because Peter is affirming the same truth that Paul is teaching us this morning, that God is impartial. Look at Acts 10 and verse 34. He said, I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And here's the same phrase we just read in our text. He is Lord of all. Now go back to verse 35 for a moment in your mind. Peter says, in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Please understand, he is not saying that any person in any religion who simply fears God and obeys God, does what is right, that that means that he is saved. That would contradict the definitive statement that Peter made in Acts 4 and verse 12, that there's salvation in no one else but Jesus. But many liberal theologians, some who called themselves evangelicals like Clark Pinnock, this was one of his home run verses. And he was in Christian bookstores all across the nation. And he would quote this verse. He was once a conservative, became a liberal, I'm assuming because he was never a true believer. But liberal theologians use this verse to teach that many non-Christian faiths, as long as they fear God and obey their conscience, that they'll be made right with God. 
Well, that's not true. And again, if that were true of Cornelius, then he would have already been saved. But in Acts 11.14, it tells us he was not yet saved. So what does it mean? Well, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Number one, a man must fear God. If a man does not fear God, he will never see his need for a Savior. If you don't believe that your sin has some consequence before an absolutely holy God, you'll never come to Christ. That's why I say to people all the time, before you can get a man saved, you've got to get him lost. He must have a fear of the Lord. And in the context, Cornelius did what was right. He responded to the light that he had. Now, if a man suppresses the light that he has, then sometimes we have to do what Jesus tells us. We shake the dust off our feet and we move on. But here's a man who revered God, he feared God, he knew his sin had a consequence, he responded to everything he did, and so what did God do? He brought him the gospel. And that's what God does today. People ask all the time, what about the fellow who's never heard? Listen, if God has to parachute a missionary into some foreign tribe of people to give him the gospel, he'll do whatever it takes if a person's heart is open and responsive. And so clearly, he says he is Lord of all. And so back in our text, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, one of the problems I have with the hyper-Calvinists is he's really diminished the whoever's in the Bible. Whoever doesn't mean whoever to him. Whoever means just the elect. Whoever means whoever. How many of you are whoever? Uh, It looks like all of you. That's the way it is. That's what God's Word teaches. The scope of the gospel is universal. Finally, the preaching of the gospel is essential. One follows after the other. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God to save. And the gospel is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, notice beginning in verse 14, in the first half of verse 15, there are four questions. Don't miss it. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how should they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Question four, how will they preach unless they are sent? Follow the Holy Spirit's train of thought through the Apostle Paul's pen. This is challenging, but it's so helpful if we can get it. Now, if the language of the gospel is a whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord kind of language, and it is, then implicit in the word call is that the gospel must be preached because you cannot call upon the name of the Lord until you've first heard about the Lord. So men cannot call on him in whom they have not believed, and they cannot believe in him, according to this verse, in whom they have not heard, and they cannot hear unless there's a preacher. Now, follow carefully because what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's emphasizing our responsibility, your responsibility, and my responsibility by giving us the gospel in reverse order. He plainly just said in verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in verse 14, he asked question number one, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? In other words, it's the sinner's call on Jesus as Yahweh, as Lord for salvation. That has to be preceded by believing. In other words, if you don't believe that you have a need that only Jesus can meet, then you'll never call upon him. And then he asks question two, well, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? The sinner cannot believe the gospel until he hears the gospel. So hearing precedes believing, and hearing and believing precedes calling. But he's not done yet. He takes it a step further. Look at question three. And how will they hear without a preacher? 
God uses what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians the foolishness of preaching. God is a sovereign God. It, it just blows my mind. Would choose to use us as his preachers. And this, by the way, is a non-technical use of the word preacher. In our society, you know, people come up to me, how you doing, preacher? And they mean by that that, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, and they distinguish me from themselves if they're not. But understand, this is not a technical word here, speaking of someone who serves in some particular office. Now, I do think we need to ask some important questions in our day because the evangelical seminaries in America are shrinking. There's a couple that have maintained or grown, but overall, when you take all the Bible-believing seminaries in the country, they are shrinking. Why? Because fewer and fewer men are going into the ministry to become pastors. And we need to ask today, where are the young men who will stand up for God? Where are those who are willing as a lifestyle to proclaim the gospel, to earn their living from the gospel? We need people like that. And we're beginning to see what has happened in Europe. And so in Europe, you've got pastors. There are so few. Many of them are pastoring four and five churches, and they go to one church a month. That's the problem of Catholicism. They have so few people who are going into the priesthood. They're shutting thousands of churches across the country, partly to pay for the sex scandal, but too because they don't have priests to go and minister in those churches. And we who have the gospel, we are losing more and more men into the ministry. And this is important. How will they preach? Question number four, unless they are sent. Now Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Please understand, it is God who sends people. It has nothing to do with a church elder board or a church mission board or some mission agency. Now, a mission agency or a local church might help you to go, but they are not the ones who send you. God sends people. Isaiah, remember, he had that vision of God and he heard God say, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah doesn't say, here I am, I will go. He says, here I am, send me. Now, in the broadest sense, as we already discovered this morning from the Great Commission, and if you don't own it, you'll never do it. But in the broadest sense, God has sent every Christian. And out of that mass that he has sent, he does call some people to do what I do. But we have all been sent as preachers of the gospel. And certainly when we go, we need to go like Jesus said, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father that you're not to go and to preach until you're clothed from on high with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only way a sinner will really hear the word is as we preach the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so notice here, there are two questions that deal with the, in essence, the, the method, and there are two questions that deal with the message itself. Four questions in all, spelled out in four verbs. I have those four verbs underlined in my Bible. Calling, hearing, preaching, and sending. Now, we talk today about rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying, and I fear that some of us in about five eight minutes when this service ends, you're going to leave here and go to lunch and you're not going to give it another thought. And that, again, is a big problem all across our nation. People are so filled with their own personal lives and entertainments, they don't really care. 
They don't share. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? The first two questions deals with the unbelievers' problem. You might think, well, what do they need to hear in America? It's everywhere. They have the gospel. Let me read to you a recent Barna survey. And if you know Barna, he's a reliable pollster put right up there with Gallup and others. He asks these questions. Do you believe that praying to deceased saints can positively affect your life? Half the people in the survey said yes. Do you believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truths? Four out of six said yes. Do you believe truth can only be discovered through human reasoning and personal experience? 56% said yes. In other words, they're, they're putting a higher authority over their ability to discern truth than over the Scripture. Do you believe that Jesus Christ sinned like other people while he was on earth? 42% of Americans say yes to that. And by the way, the Pew Research came up with the same number, except it was 44. Do you believe that when people are born, they are neither good nor evil? They make a choice between the two as they mature. 74% said yes. So the average American no longer believes that man A is sinful by nature. He no longer believes that Jesus is the sinless son of God. And he no longer believes in the unique inspiration of Holy Scripture. Now, people say to me, well, you know, we don't need to be so concerned with America. We need to be concerned with the world. We need to be concerned with the world. And I recognize that. But understand, America is our mission field. Our ability as Americans to send tens of thousands of missionaries to foreign mission fields is because there are born-again Christians in the pew who are able to fund that. America is our mission field, but we take that verse, Matthew 28, 19, and we dump it on the missionary. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go to Africa. Go to Asia. Make disciples. It literally reads, as you go, make disciples or convents. As you go where? As you go everywhere you go, make disciples of all nations. This is our mission field, and people need to hear the message through us. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? That's their problem. But listen to the believer's responsibility. How will they hear without a preacher, and how will they preach unless they are sent? See, it'd be very easy for us to take this passage of Scripture this morning, either apply it to the professional and say it has no application for me, and Paul is like looking at us in the eye by the Spirit of God, and he's saying, listen, you need to go and preach. It doesn't matter how nice a life you live. People can't get saved by looking at your life. They have to hear the plan of salvation. Don't say, I witness with my life. You should, but that's, if that's exclusive, then you're witnessing only to yourself. They need to hear the word of truth in order to be converted. Now, God may not call you to be an evangelist or a pastor or a missionary, but God has called you. A great example of one man who understood his call was Edward Kimball. Kimball was a Christian who wanted to be used by God, and he was studying the Great Commission of Jesus Christ, and he realized, this is my call. He was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. But he knew he needed to go and share his faith. He was a member of the Mount Vernon Congregational Church in Boston. 
And there was a young 18-year-old who worked for his uncle in a shoe store. And his uncle says, you work for me, you go to Sunday school. He reasoned that's reasonable, so he worked for him. He had a job, which he so desperately wanted, and he went to Sunday school. And he was in Edward Kimball's class. And God gave him a burden for this 18-year-old boy. And God kept saying, you need to go and you need to speak to him. So one day he went to that shoe store, April 21st, 1855. I've been to the very spot. I've stood there on a number of occasions, and I can't help but think of this powerful conversion and the obedience of this man. A very shy man, almost scared of his own shadow. But he went, and he confronted the man, and he told him about the Lord Jesus, and that man bowed his head. Dwight Lyman Moody gave his life to Christ. Some of you don't know who D.L. Moody is. He was in the 19th century, in the early part of the 20th century, for the first few years, what Billy Graham was in our day. He went back to Chicago, joined a church there, And they gave him some street kids that no one else wanted. And Moody, in turn, became friends with those street kids and shared the gospel with him. And they began to reach other street kids. And before long, he had a huge Sunday school class. And other churches began to invite him to preach because so many people were coming to Christ. And before long, they heard of it over the seas. And he got in a boat and he went all the way to England. And he went to a church pastor by F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was a very dignified and cultured English pastor. When Moody came into his pulpit, he began to sink and was embarrassed as this man butchered the king's English. But in spite of Moody's English, the fire of God fell in the service and many people were saved. And uh, F.B. Meyer tells the story how he went to the Woman's Missionary Society and he was speaking to some of the ladies and he asked one lady, how was she doing? She said, marvelous. My life has been totally transformed. I have now, because Mr. Moody has come, have shared the gospel with every single girl in my Sunday school class. And Meyer said that he learned something about the language of the human soul and the power of the Holy Spirit and that he was unyielded. And so in a fresh way, he gave his heart to the Lord and God began to bless his ministry. And at one point, he was invited to the United States and he went to the Lake Forest Bible College and he preached on surrender. And he said, if you are not willing to give everything to Jesus Christ, at least tell him that you are willing to be willing. And one young man who was listening to him, who was getting ready to quit Bible college, He said, God, that's me. I've not been willing, but I am willing for you to make me willing. And his name was Wilbur Chapman. And Chapman became a great evangelist. And he preached in the Pacific Garden Mission. I've preached there before to some 800 street men, drunks and drug addicts. And what a fantastic ministry God gave them. And while he was there in the Pacific Garden Mission... There was an ex-professional baseball player who heard the gospel and gave his life to Jesus Christ. His name was Billy Sunday. And Chapman said, hey, will you help me with some of my crusades and help me to set up the tents and the benches and help me with the counseling? And indeed, Sunday was used of God in just simple ways. And he learned from Chapman and he grew in his faith. And as Chapman's health began to fail, he asked Billy Sunday to preach. And God, for whatever reason, chose to use Billy Sunday like he used Dwight L. Moody. And millions of people were converted to Christ. 
including my wife's grandfather who rode his bicycle from Timmonsville, South Carolina to a tobacco barn in Florence where he heard Billy Sunday preach and was saved. And he was eventually invited to Charlotte, North Carolina, where a great crusade took place and hundreds of individuals were saved. And because of that, they formed a group called the Billy Sunday Layman's Evangelistic Club, just a group of businessmen who were burdened. And as they lived through the Great Depression, they said, we need to see God do this again in Charlotte. And so they called another evangelist, Mordecai Ham, and Mordecai Ham came, and he preached that night, and a 16-year-old lanky young man came forward and gave his life to Jesus Christ. His name, of course, was Billy Graham, and he's preached to kings and to presidents and to princes and to millions of people. How did it all start? <laughs> One guy, Edward Kimball, most of you have never heard his name, shy but obedient, he went and he shared the gospel with a man named Moody who touched Meyer, who moved Chapman, who reached Sunday, who reached the businessman in Charlotte, who invited Ham, who then touched Billy Graham. You talk about a legacy. See, some of us here, we've never seen anybody ever come to Christ. And you can't remember the last time God used you either directly or indirectly. And we just need in a fresh way to say, Lord, I am willing to be willing. I want you to use me. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless you go? Now, Father, we thank you this morning for the encouragement that you give us through your word, by the Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Father, if there's someone here who's never been saved, help them to realize that they are included in the whoever, no matter what they've done, no matter what they've been like, they are not so far from you that you cannot receive them today. If you're here today and you don't have the assurance that heaven is your home, that if Christ returned today, that he would take you to heaven, then come to him through his cross, believing that he didn't die for some of your sin, but all of it, and was raised from the dead, showing he was able. And if you will call on his name today, he will save you. Ask him simply in faith, knowing that God cannot lie. Ask him, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, you gave this text not primarily to the lost, but to the church in Rome and by extension to us. You gave this passage to us. And some of us, we know these verses, some of us can quote the verses. But we don't really see ourselves as people who are called and sent by you to go into a lost world. Change that, I pray. Renew our perspective. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message, download the Search the Scriptures app available at the App Store for iPhones and at the Google Play Store for Android devices. There you can listen to the entire Roman series. Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy in either of those stores. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
7478. And the title of today's message is Rescue the Perishing, program number ROM52. Tomorrow, we move on in chapter 10 of our study of Romans and discover that hearing is not the same as believing. Join us then as we search the scriptures.